Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be served in this case. She's going to get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. Comes with a 20-year warranty and a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about CanadaLand and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures. And it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support CanadaLand. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a CanadaLand supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com join. And thank you. Drew Anderson, Prairie's reporter for the Narwhal, alum of two Calgary Weeklies, RIP, and real-life denizen of that city. Welcome to Shortcuts. Thanks for having me. Today on the show, the moment that we first left, Danielle Smith, all alone on the act of sovereignty. And if 10 years is a long time in the life of a digital media company, how do we describe 20 years in the life of an indie magazine? I'm Jonathan Goldsby, and this is Shortcuts, where we talk shit about the news. This episode is brought to you by Jason Wilson, David Small, Roderick Lang, Alexis Ovenden, Eve Lajowski, Noel Ash, Sammy Bayevsky, and Zach. Hey, I'm Zach, and I brew beer in Minneapolis. I discovered Canada Land through Thunder Bay, and now I listen to pretty much everything. I love Commons, even though it depresses the shit out of me, and I appreciate Jesse's honesty on shortcuts. Keep up the great work, y'all. Just moments ago, Alberta tabled a bill to invoke the Alberta Sovereignty Act. Danielle Smith is planning to use the controversial Alberta Sovereignty Act. Alberta is invoking its Sovereignty Act. The Alberta Sovereignty Act is a very spicy law. With a resolution calling Ottawa's plan to bring provincial electricity grids to net zero by 2035 harmful to Alberta. 
Alberta's government is committed to protecting Albertans from federal overreach. Alberta government is choosing to bypass uh, the legislature on a number of issues. So I host a show called Wag the Dog about the Premier of Ontario, the forces that drive him, what he does with that power, and what that means for the rest of us. But I often wondered if if, if Alberta would be more conducive to such a show, you know, provincial affairs by way of, I don't know, amateur psychoanalysis, by way of character portrait, by way – because with, you know, Daniel Smith now or Jason Kenney previously, it's really hard to think of them and what they're doing and how they're taking the province without – I guess without thinking of them as people, as characters and considering them in the context of their own history. These days, Smith is freaking out about the federal government's clean electricity regulations, which aim for the country's electricity grid to have net zero emissions by 2035. And in response, she has invoked for the first time the Sovereignty Act, or the officially the Alberta Sovereignty within a United Canada Act, which is kind of like the way I would explain is like if the notwithstanding clause is like a whole created in the Constitution of Canada by design – Alberta Sovereignty Act is like a little post-it note scrawled on a like a little scrawl on a post-it note touched to the Constitution that sort of says like maybe we can get around something if we do something. And so she is basically trying to trying to or threatening to or invoking the idea of messing around with <laughs> with confederation as such in order to protect the rights of companies to continue to basically continue to have emissions longer than they would otherwise have. So before we get into the media criticism, I think we should just talk about like, how would you describe what is the deal? (laughs) Oh, that's an easy one. I think, you know, especially if you're looking at this from the outside and maybe don't really understand what Alberta is all about, it might seem confusing and all over the place. And all these different pieces that are coming in here, we're just fighting with Ottawa left, right, and center. But it is all basically one thing. And it is that Alberta, as, you know, an energy powerhouse that really, I mean, our fortunes sink and swim on the price of a barrel of oil. And it is all of it together, the government trying to protect that industry that they think is not only the thing that has given us our wealth in the past, but that is going to give us our wealth in the future and telling the government to butt out of it. It makes good politics because Albertans love to fight with Ottawa, but it also, according to them, according to this government, this is sort of how we maintain our standard of living, our way of life. And so you look at everything from the Sovereignty Act to threats to withdraw from the CPP, all of it. It is all just a strategy to try and retain control and power and decision-making authority related to fossil fuel development. The Sovereignty Act in particular, my understanding, so typically if a province or, or the federal government contends that an issue is outside the jurisdiction of one government or another, that is to say if the federal government has possibly weighted into affairs that are under the, constitutionally the jurisdiction of the provinces or sometimes vice versa, you typically would go to a court to come up with, you know, go through the court system to come up with a ruling, sort that out and come up with basically like, oh, no, this is ultra virus. This, in fact, is outside your powers. This is unconstitutional by that respect. This sort of in the way that the, you know, the notwithstanding clause is allows a provincial legislature or the federal House of Commons to with a majority vote, simply opt out of many provisions of the charter. The idea here with the Sovereignty Act seems to be that a simple majority of the Alberta legislature can itself declare a piece of federal legislation unconstitutional by way of, like, 
you're butting into Alberta affairs in an inappropriate way, and therefore provincial entities. I mean, they can, they can do a few things, but basically provincial entities don't have to follow it. That's a little more complicated, but is that essentially correct? That's essentially it. I mean, with the giant missing context of the fact that this doesn't actually do anything. I mean, yeah. the, like this is, you know, the notwithstanding clause is the notwithstanding clause. That yes. is in the Constitution. That's a real thing. The Sovereignty Act is political theater. It is nothing more than that. It has no legal weight, really. You can't just tell someone to ignore federal laws and expect to get away with it just because you say it's a nice thing to do. And even with the invocation recently where they say, you know, with the CER, we're going to invoke the or the uh, Sovereignty Act and, and tell people not to follow it. They also say, don't break the law. So, <laughs> I mean, even in the announcement, they're saying that what we're telling you to do, you should not do. This thing was drafted right from the beginning to be unconstitutional and they know it. I mean, that does seem to be a, I mean, you're saying, you know, you can't do something that and expect to get away with it. But I think a lot of governments these days, maybe it's – I don't know how far back it goes. Certainly, I first know the Harper knows with the Harper Conservatives. But it doesn't, doesn't seem an uncommon mode of governing or attempting to govern. It's like let's do something that may or may not be constitutional and sort of see how far we can get with it and see what effects that has. And, you know, there have been many good explainers about this. I really liked the one that Aaron Wary wrote for the CBC. Aaron Wary, I always think, like, the first time I ever saw his byline was a review was it for a review of a Panic at the Disco album. I can't remember what year that was. <laughs> but he had a piece, just an online piece called Daniel Smith Wants a Fight Over Climate Policy, Whether We Need It or Not. But I guess other than the pieces that are direct explainers, how do you find journalists or reporters have been – like, how do you cover all of these – I don't even just nuances, but, like, how do you cover all of these different little explanations in the span of a single news story – is there a nut graph that explains that the sovereign, she's doing the Sovereignty Act, but, oh, it's probably nothing? Well, that's a challenge. I mean, you know, you look at the CBC and what they're doing with analysis is really powerful, especially in these kinds of contexts, because it does allow for that voice to come in and that explanation. When you're doing a, you know, a straight news story, it gets a little bit more challenging because you can get lost in the weeds real fast. I think, in general, the media here is pretty savvy and has done a fairly good job from the mainstream publications right on down of sort of, you know, calling it out for what it is. And I think right from the beginning, even when they were just sort of musing about the Sovereignty Act, people were we're calling it out. We're we're saying, you know, this is theater. And even the the people that created this idea said that it was intentionally unconstitutional. So I think, you know, Alberta media in general has been pretty good about being sort of clear-eyed about this. But I think, like anything, when we're talking about media and coverage, I mean, things get lost in the weeds, simple coverage, headlines, things that sort of like come and go quickly, you know, the wrong lead that just kind of focuses on the sensation rather than the the meat of the matter and a headline that does the same. And next thing you know, you've got misinformation spreading faster than you can explain it away. If I understand this correctly, she alleged that if oil company executives could potentially be incarcerated if the clean energy regulations were not complied with by 2035? Yeah. Yeah, that's that's sort of a favorite one of hers is to suggest that, you know, someone that's operating a natural gas plant that doesn't have the right amount of CCUS attached to it is going to be, you know, let off in handcuffs by some sort of federal climate force. I mean, my reactions that I guess are number one, like, 
I one, I, I wish. <laughs> Two, generous way to look at it is she's overly optimistic as to the degree to which climate emi- any emissions targets are ever enforced anywhere. Mm. And three, she's also overly optimistic about the um, frequency with which people in suits are put in prison in Canada. <laughs> but All she, valid points. But she, yeah. said, but she says that a lot. Like I, I knew she's, but she, is that that's a favorite of hers? Uh, yeah, she's she said that right from the very beginning. I mean, as soon as they said that, you know, this was something that, like, you know, you don't want to be on the wrong side of the law. And, and because of the way that it is drafted, it is actually, you know, there are elements of the criminal code involved in it. And she basically extrapolated that to say that there's going to be jail time for these CEOs. And she uses those sort of pressure points to sort of, you know, make her points and... One thing that we haven't talked about with her latest declaration to use the Sovereignty Act for this stuff is the other side of that, which is, okay, and you have to understand in Alberta, we're talking about private power producers here. You know, everybody else across Canada has their crown corporations, you know, BC Hydro, SAS Power. In Alberta, we don't have that. We have a private market for electricity. So she's telling you know, basically the CEOs of independent private corporations with natural gas plants, we don't want you to follow federal regulations, which they're legally obligated to do. And then on the flip side, she mm-hmm. said, that might freak you out a little bit. So we're going to explore nationalizing this stuff. We're going to create a crown corporation, or at least look at the possibility of creating a crown corporation to buy your natural gas plants if you don't want to operate them. Or build our own. And that's astounding. <laughs> that is amazing. I mean, yeah, it's, it's tempting to make this all just all about, like, a general uh, Danielle Smith thing. But I guess, who do you think has gotten the closest to explaining what's going on in her mind? You know what? I think Jason Markasoff at CBC does a pretty good job, formerly of McLean's. He does analysis for CBC Calgary. Um, and that allows him, you know, a little bit of freedom and a little bit of personality to seep in there. And he's got a long history of knowing who Danielle Smith is, being around her. I, I'm sure that they were working at the Herald at the same time, even when she was a columnist. So, you know, he's got a lot of insight and a lot of history to sort of back up some of these things and looking at what what shapes her and what shapes her thinking. Um, and so I think he's done a really good job of that. And then I think there's all other, you know, like hard news sort of reporters that have done a good job of sort of digging into some of the cognitive dissonance yeah. that's at play or some of the sort of blatant struggles with truth <laughs> uh, that we sometimes see, right? And, and just sort of like making sure that calling out those those factual inaccuracies, of, you know, like Emma Graney from the Globe and Mail comes to mind. She covers energy um, and electricity and it has done a really good job of just being like, hold on, that doesn't make any sense. What are we going to do here? And she is Australian, right? And she used to be at the journal? Yeah, exactly. She got into a real throwdown actually with with Smith at a at a news conference regarding the renewables pause, which is a whole other schmozzle over here. They've they've put a seven-month pause on renewable energy projects in the province. And there were some serious contradictions in why what Smith was saying was the reason for doing that versus what we could plainly see. With all due respect, though, I mean, that's not what you said earlier. You said that this is what they're asking for and they weren't. But anyway, my next well, they question did, they is... Did ask, they did ask for they us, didn't to, ask for, they did ask for us letters. to do a so pause on You just on told us, look, the letters, oh, the letters, that's not what they said. So I'm just saying. They did. Um, so when you're did, also talking just about... Just for the, the record, okay. they did ask us okay. to put a pause on wind and solar, okay. and that was what I was asking. Yeah, I know, but not about transmission. Respect. That's my point. And so you're bringing this up as reasoning, and yet it's not, in fact, what they had asked for. I do find it fascinating, just reading the variety of articles about this, the... 
I mean, it, certainly she's not the only politician where journalists have to struggle with or at least trying to figure out how do you accurately, fairly, even-handedly and effectively convey the degree of dishonesty, <laughs> uh, as is mm. often the case. But to do so in the case here in, is in Alberta, in the case of articles that are by and large about energy regulation and clean energy policy, which are not necessarily the most the easiest things to write about anyway, especially the easiest things to write about in a compelling way, and the amount of information that has to be juggled. I feel like in Ontario, for example, it's one thing to talk about property deals. I feel like that's a fairly easy thing to explain and to help people visualize. But when you're talking about, in the context of an article about emissions targets or about basically legislating emissions targets and uh, regulating carbon output it it seems it's it sounds like uh it's quite a steep hill yeah and, and that really is the challenge is these are complex issues and so if you have politicians as all politicians do making quick snappy easy talking points you know and and danielle smith and her government i mean danielle smith is an excellent speaker she is engaging she is smart she knows her audience. I mean, people like her. It's hard not to like her. But she effortlessly plugs in information that is incorrect uh, while she's doing that, but spread throughout a whole lot of truth as well. And she presents it in a really engaging way. And she's not afraid to hit you with real zingers that, you know, is just like red meat for a lot of, of journalists and columnists. And so when you've got these really simplified talking points mixed in with issues that are difficult to wrap your head around as someone that's deep in it, let alone present that to readers who maybe aren't and generally are not as informed, it's real challenge. How do you take something complex and, and pit it against these simple slogans? And, you know, in Alberta, that's particularly true. I mean, the oil and gas industry... Try going through Alberta energy regulator documents um, and let me know how far you get. This stuff is dense and hard to understand and hard to report. Try figuring out Alberta's electricity grid. We have multiple power producers. We have transmissions lines owned by different companies. We have you know, an independent system operator that's responsible for building the transmission and making sure the lights stay on versus the regulator that oversees the market versus the market service administrator. I mean, it is, it's taken me years to understand just how we make electricity in this province. I always think that governing must be just so easy if you can just say whatever, not necessarily tethered to the bounds of reality. That's not great for the people being governed. It sounds like it's a, del a delightful way for the people who are governing, but it also is a very challenging environment for journalists to try to find their way around in. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, like we can't make stuff up. I can't lie. I can't just print whatever I want. I would rightly be sued and I would rightly lose my credibility. You know, you saw this down in the States with Trump and, and the media trying to figure out how to cover him. I don't think we're quite there, but it is hard when you need to sit there and fact check in real time on a, on a constant basis and then make a decision what you press back against and what you don't because you can't push back against all of it. It's just impossible and you'll drive yourself crazy doing it. This government has proved itself difficult when it comes to 
information. We do a lot of digging at the Narwhal, and part of that is filing a lot of freedom of information requests. Noticeable change. The redactions are insane. Like change from Kenny to Smith, you mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, it, is, it is a noticeable shift. We've got, you know, the Narwhal through my managing editor, Mike D'Souza, has got, is part of a systemic review. The Globe Mail is also part of that through the Office of the Information and Privacy Commissioner because it's gotten so bad. I have several complaints and a possible inquiry on the way. You request information, they just redact it as a matter of course and then say, fight me. And this is true across various ministries and everything? Yeah. Yeah, this wow. is, it is a real challenge. I don't know why they think that people like me are going to go away if they make it more difficult, but uh, it's not working so far, but it wears you down and it takes up a lot of time. It takes a lot of time and effort to sort of do these things. And I think they know that. This episode is brought to you by Oxio. When shopping around for internet providers, it can be tricky to figure out what's right for you. There are a lot of flashy deals, but you know, can can, can you trust them? Oxio is an internet provider that doesn't do term contracts or price hikes. They want their prices to be fair and sustainable so you know exactly what you're getting when you sign up. You don't have to bargain each year. They're not going to increase it on you. Nor are there any hidden fees or surprise-free bills. They even text you each month to remind you of your bill. They wanted you to find the exact plan right for you, and they'll let you switch if you want a higher download speed, let's say. Their customer service is great. They make sure you get the answers and support you need. Oxo is available now in Quebec, Ontario, Manitoba, Saskatchewan, BC, and Alberta. Drew. Okay, so they they're across the country now. <laughs> it's an option for you. Visit Candleland.oxio.ca for an alternative telco internet experience. That's oxio.ca and use the promo code Candleland to get your first month free. Drew, on this show, we like to duly note things. What I would like to note duly today is that the nearly week-long ceasefire between Israel and Hamas has offered an opportunity to step back and take stock of the casualties and particularly the civilian casualties that have already been amassed in the past just shy of two months. And crucially, to put the scale of those civilian casualties in context. Now to start, Israel has counted about 1,200 people killed in the Hamas attacks of October 7th. And per Israeli police, 845 or about two-thirds of them were civilians. But I want to turn to an article on the front page of Sunday's New York Times. In print, it carried the headline, Big Bombs in Urban Areas Raise Civilian Toll in Gaza. And online, perhaps more pointedly, Gaza civilians under Israeli barrage are being killed at historic pace. Here are the top-line takeaways, or at least my top-line takeaways, from the piece by London-based visual editor for The Times, Lauren Leatherby. At least 14,000 people have been killed in Gaza since October 7th, according to figures which, though tallied by Hamas-run government ministries, are generally considered reliable. And while those numbers don't separate out civilians from combatants, experts consider the number of women and children killed to represent a conservative estimate of all civilian deaths. After a little over a month and a half, that number of women and children standing in for all Gazan civilians now stands at 10,000. 10,000 is more than the roughly 7,700 civilians documented as killed by U.S. forces and their international allies in the entire first year of the 2003 invasion of Iraq. 10,000 is creeping toward the roughly 12,400 civilians documented to have been killed by the United States and its allies in Afghanistan over nearly 20 years. 10,000 is roughly the same as the number of civilians killed by all sides, including ISIS, in the nine-month Battle of Mosul. 10,000 is 
twice as many women and children as the UN has confirmed killed in Ukraine in almost two years of Russian attacks. And since October 7th, more children have been killed in Gaza than were killed last year in the world's major conflict zones, two dozen of them combined. The shortest answer is that Israel has been using very big bombs, a lot of them, in a very small area. To find a historical comparison, one expert consulted by the Times said we might have to look to Vietnam or even to World War II. By the time listeners hear this, the ceasefire may be extended or it may be drawing to a close, in which case these numbers would be virtually certain to rise. But for now, I do think this helps put both the war and the responses to it into context. Duly noted. Uh, now, Drew, what would you like to know duly today? You know what? I went back and forth on this because there is just so much out there. I think that what we don't talk about enough is sort of, you know, what works and what doesn't when we're talking about climate change mitigation, and especially when it comes to fossil fuels and stuff. You know, I, there was actually an explainer out today from CBC, uh, Benjamin Shingler, Canada's fossil fuel industry is banking on carbon capture to lower emissions. Is it a viable solution? And I think that this is a conversation that's starting to happen a bit more. You know, we saw the International Energy Agency come out and say, hey, you know, like, let's not bet the bank on this. And we are starting to see a bit more nuance. But I don't think that a lot of people in the general public in particular really understands, you know, they, they hear carbon capture and they're like, great, problem solved. Oh, I wish. <laughs> but we don't really, yeah, you know, like, all right, we can keep, we can keep doing this. I mean, it, it does nothing to address the exhaust coming out of your car and all the rest of it, but... There are real limitations on some of these technologies. You know, small modular reactors are another big push in Canada. We don't have a functioning one. You know, that is like an unproven technology. CCUS doesn't work at scale. I think talking about what does and does not work and really delineating sort of, you know, fact from fiction or wishful thinking, I think that we need to have a, a lot more grown-up conversations about sort of where we're going and how we get there. And also, just to throw a little wrench in the system, while not killing the oil and gas industry overnight, because that would be devastating to people that, you know, I know and love and, and lots of other people too. So I think looking at things like that explainer and seeing a heck of a lot more of them about, you know, does CCUS work? Why or why not? And where are we putting all these billions of dollars? Duly noted. I'd also like to note, Julie, a little bit of news that's breaking as we record this on midday Wednesday. It appears that CBC is the first to report that the federal government has reached an agreement with Google to avert that heads off Google's threat to pull Canadian news from all of its products, including search results. The return, Google will make annual payments to news companies that will total around $100 million. That is less than had previously been anticipated or estimated. And we'll also see if there's a portion of the value that is non-monetary, because that is something that Google has been wanting, which is like, we want to give it in like, you know, Zoom workshops for journalists or whatever, and we value this at that. So we'll see you the details. But thankfully, at least the catastrophe that Google threatened, Google has backed down on. Duly noted. <laughs> that, that could definitely help a, a publication like the Narwhal that doesn't take ad revenue. This episode is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Trust is important. There are a lot of mattress lies out there, a lot of mattress liars. And I, I, I didn't intend the pun, but it occurred to me that there is one as I was saying those words. Listen, I am not lying to you. Uh, I have uh, experienced the Douglas mattress. It is an exceptional mattress at a surprisingly affordable price point. 
It is a mattress that sleeps cool. It doesn't have that weird thing in the summer where the mattress gets like an oven. It's a very good product. It's delivered to your house in a box. You don't have to go to a big mattress store. It is a medium firm mattress, which is what Canadians prefer. And it comes with a 365-night trial and a 20-year warranty. What more can I tell you? Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, It's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody, half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. On December 4th, 2003, Spacing Magazine was launched with an event at the 360 in Toronto, which I think is now a clothing store called Nobis. Spacing is a triannual magazine devoted to urbanism, the urban landscape, and urban design in Toronto, although there was a stretch when it went national. It started off as a project of the Toronto Public Space Committee, a group I was later involved with, as part of its efforts to fight for the right to continue to poster on public utility poles. The city of Toronto was looking to ban public postering, but, you know, billboard companies are still allowed to express themselves in public space. So there was a campaign to try to get Talk City Council down from that, and spacing, the first issue, was a part of that. About six months later, on June 5th, 2004, Shameless Magazine was launched, independent feminist magazine that was also at the 360. Earlier this month, so about 19 and a half years later, Shameless announced to readers that it would be effectively shutting down, at least for the time being, writing, you know, Dear Shameless readers, as you may know, at the beginning of this year, Shameless paused production of the magazine to consider how to run a sustainable feminist media organization. At the time, our all-volunteer staff felt they couldn't sustainably and ethically produce the magazine while running youth programming, maintaining our blog, carrying the load of full-time worker school, fighting for the safety and dignity of our communities, and taking what we need for our own mental health. After much reflection and discussion, we have come to the difficult decision to stop publishing a print magazine. We have also, for now, paused digital publication and our other activities until we can determine capacity. As a feminist media justice organization that has been publishing a print magazine for almost 20 years, the decision to stop printing Shameless has not been an easy one. Shameless Magazine, which began as a fourth-year journalism project at what was then called the Ryerson School of Journalism by students Nicole Cohen and Melinda Matos. We were sick of how mainstream magazines fostered a climate of low self-esteem and then convinced readers that this icky feeling would go away if only they bought the right jeans or lipstick or hair product. Basically, whatever was being advertised on the very next page. We wanted to create a teen magazine that empowered its readers. Also, this Saturday, uh, Spacing Magazine is celebrating its 20th anniversary. It's remarkable that it's lasted this long. Both publications are things that I, I think, I feel like I long took them for granted. It's like this is still, the fact that these are still around, these are both magazines that started 
2003 and 2004, then sort of that last little era when starting an independent magazine was something people would do. It was the last little period before you would just make it as a website or a blog. Indie magazines that have started since, that's usually been an aesthetic choice as opposed to just the thing you would do. And in like 2006, there was like even a cover story trend piece in the also now defunct iWeekly about the indie mag revolution. I mean, Drew, you worked at, I mean, alt-weeklies are a little different, but you, you worked at Fast Forward Weekly in Calgary, the alt-weekly from, about, I think it was 2008 to 2015, minus a year that you worked at Swerve in between. And ultimately, at the very end uh, at Fast Forward, you were its publisher. How long had Fast Forward been around by the time it closed in 2015? Almost 20 years. It started in 95. Uh, we made it to 2015. We were about a month shy, I, I believe, uh, if my math is right, and it probably isn't, uh, of, of hitting that 20-year mark. What was it like being as the publisher to make the decision to close? It was pretty tough. Um, it was less of a surprise for me. Um, you know, I had seen the books. I was, you know, watching those numbers week to week, month to month, I knew that our time was sort of limited and had known that for quite some time. I, I was, you know, working full time, sort of trying to figure out ways that we could salvage what was essentially a dead business model. And we just didn't have enough time to sort of turn it around. So, but it was hard. I mean, that publication, for those who don't know, you know, it was the local alt weekly. It was the thing where you picked it up and looked at the listings in the back and planned your weekend and, you know, got alternative news and read about the arts. And it was a real institution in Calgary. So to be at the helm and to sort of be the one to, you know, tell everybody it was done and lay off all the staff was was pretty, pretty tough. And then Swerve, where you'd worked for a, little, for a year in there, uh, closed like in 2018 as well, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. And that was a that was a post-media sort of beast. So that was inserted into the Calgary Herald. But still, yeah, played a vital role in in sort of like arts coverage for sure. Um, and then that, that tanked not long after. Yeah, I mean, we've talked a lot about, I guess, on this show and other, other places about, obviously, about all weeklies, which were almost exclusively advertising-funded publications. And it's interesting to think about and consider the fates of, I guess, monthlies or quarterlies of magazines that have some advertising, but especially indie magazines, largely rely on subscriptions and grants and such, and the various ways that's worked and hasn't. And especially when you have a staff, in those cases, have a staff that is probably even smaller, largely depend, very highly dependent on freelancers. Is Spacey Magazine a thing at all in Calgary? Is that something you're vaguely familiar with? I'm vaguely familiar with it, but I think it's mostly because I'm I'm interested in sort of what it talks about. One of the really notable things, and I feel like people like outside Toronto or even maybe in Toronto now don't even remember, was that how a big revenue source for it was continues to be merchandise. And not specifically spacing merchandise, like things with the spacing logo, although they still certainly have that. But originally it was, and still is in large part, Subway buttons. They would create basically the the creative director and publisher of Space Magazine, Matthew Blackett, had this idea that people. This was in the so-called Trontopia era when there was a renewed optimism around the future of Toronto in like the mid two thousands. Had the idea that people would buy little buttons that identified that had the name and design of the tile design colors of the subway station they lived closest to. And he pitched the idea to the TDC, and at the time TDC didn't really have any conception of what merchandise was or what to do with it. And so they didn't want to do anything with it. So he decided to make them himself and make them themselves. And it ended up being a really, really big, a really big seller. I mean, I don't know if that single-handedly funded the magazine, but it was a significant revenue source. And they have gradually expanded to the point where they have a retail store uh, at the base of 401 Richmond, which is the building that Canada Land is located in. 
It's a really good just City of Toronto civic gift store. But they've moved into, yeah, making all kinds of various civic merchandise that have being sold in different places, publishing books under the Spacing Banner, and diversifying their revenue sources with, yeah, retail operation and, hard, and, and merchandise in a way that not a lot of other small indie publications have or to a degree of success, such as I feel like even if the magazine did end one day, the retail store would probably continue, which is an interesting outcome. And so I think it's really neat that they're basically on the cusp of reaching 20 years. And I think it's amazing that that, that Shameless got to 20 years, especially like an environment where even Jezebel, another, you know, prominent American online feminist publication closed. Although it looks like it's probably going to reopen now. I felt like I've taken both or I, I took Shameless for granted and I've taken spacing for granted for a long time. I mean, at least in the decade or more since I last wrote for it. And I did feel like rather than like more like talking about the passing of time, I just want to feel like I want to appreciate these publications that are around, that are still mm -hmm. around, and especially not even just the really old ones, but the fact that these are things that in my adult lifetime started and are or were still going uh, mostly, mostly on volunteer or not especially well paid <laughs> <laughs> and still put out quality quarterly or biannual or whatever products for decades. And that's a real achievement and testament to all of that work. Yeah. I mean, it's so interesting to see these publications go, right? And it, I mean, you touched on it, right? You don't know what you got till it's gone. I mean, we all do that. It's like, oh, that restaurant closed. I meant to eat there. Oh, that publication closed. Jeez, I haven't read that in a while. You know, I, I'm really sad about it. I mean, from my own personal experience of fast forward, it's like, there was this outpouring of love and support and like our, our final issue, all the advertisers came and bought a thank you ad in it. And it's like, where the hell were you guys for the past year, you know, or two or three or four? And I think it's really hard to appreciate those things in the moment and to let them go. But man, it's it's tough out there. You mentioned spacing. I mean, that's what people have to do. They have to figure out ways that are, if you're still relying on that sort of revenue model, you need to find alternative forms of revenue to, to keep it going because ad dollars are not the same. They're never going to be. That sort of model is dead. And then looking at things like not-for-profits, right? I mean, like the Narwhal, like the Taiyi, like others um, that, you know, we operate as basically a charity. We we give like charitable tax receipts to, to people and get donations and it's thriving. You know, that is a successful alternative model there too. Yeah, I'm glad to hear that Narwhal is thriving. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> That's Shortcuts for this week. Thanks so much for joining me, Dune, and for explaining Daniel Smith and Alberta and energy regulation to me. I, I, actually, I really appreciate it. My pleasure. I feel like I just scratched the surface. So, you know, if you have any more questions, let me know. You're on Twitter slash X at Candleland. You can email me at Jonathan at Candleland.com. I read everything you send. I also, uh, I'm on Blue Sky these days. It's more pleasant than, than X. And I co-host uh, Wag the Dog, which is the monthly Ontario politics show at Candleland. Where can people find you, Drew? Uh, that's a good question. I, you know, social media is such a cesspool these days. I, I don't really give it out. I guess I'm on X slash Twitter still at uh, Drew P. Anderson. Don't ask what the P stands for. It's just nothing. And what am I on Blue Sky? I'm on there too. I am at Drew Anderson 
www.bluesky.social. So uh, find me there. I'm a little more active in that space. Oh, wonderful. People can find your writing at thenarwhal.ca. This episode is produced by Aviva Lassard with additional production by Caleb Thompson. Our managing editor is Annette Ajofo. Our editor-in-chief is Karen Pugliese. Theme music is by So-Called Syndication is by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca. If you value this podcast, please support us. We rely on listeners like you paying for journalism. As a supporter, you'll get premium access to all our shows ad-free, including early releases and bonus content. You'll also get our exclusive newsletter, discounts on Canada Land merch, not quite as large a selection of spacing, but it's getting there, invites and tickets to our live and virtual events, and more than anything, you'll be a part of the solution to Canada's journalism crisis, and you'll be keeping our work free and accessible to everybody. Come join us now, click the link in your show notes, or go to candleland.com slash join. You can listen ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada Land, and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures, and it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada Land. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada Land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be served in this case. She's gonna get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.